Good evening. Tonight we are remembering and celebrating the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you might be wondering, why would this be something that we should be celebrating? How could a horrific death and torture be something worth celebrating? And we're going to look at an answer for that tonight. And uh, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I think we also have it up on the screen. We're going to answer that question with a question. Why did Jesus come? Let's take a quick look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 describes Jesus as the radiance, the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father, as much God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But our passage says that Jesus did not cling to his status, to his rights as God. He did not value that more than his love and obedience to the Father. Instead, he emptied himself meaning he set aside his rights, he set aside his power, he set aside his status, and he entered into humanity in the most humblest form possible, in a poor family, in a poor part of the world. Why? Because Jesus was obeying the will of the Father, which ultimately included the torture and death on the cross. But why? What happened on the cross besides a good teacher dying? The Roman Empire crucified literally hundreds of thousands of people in the course of their history. It was a very common thing to do to enemies and to rebellious slaves. They had lots of rebellious slaves. So their history was checkered with crucifixion. So why was this crucifixion any different? Because he wasn't just a good teacher, was he? He was fully God and fully man while he hung on that tree. And for the first and only time in all of human history, there existed a being that could bridge the gap between humanity and the divine, because he was both. This is what our passage teaches us. Jesus, as God, took on the form of a servant, the likeness of man, through humility. At last, humanity could interact with, could talk to, could touch, could see God because he dwelt among them. But why? Why did Jesus come? You could say that he came to show us the distance God was willing to go to have a relationship 
with his most prized creation. We are the only part of the creation that is made in his image. But what does that mean? Well, what is the greatest distance? You might say that it is the diameter of the universe, which scientists estimate to be about 93 billion light years across, which is a number so huge it kind of becomes irrelevant at some point. It's huge. If that's your guess, that's a good guess. But you're wrong. That's not the greatest distance. The greatest distance is the distance between holiness and sin. I know what you're thinking now. Okay, Ben, you're getting all metaphysical on us now. There's no way that we could possibly measure that distance. That's kind of the point. That's because the distance between holiness and sin is infinite. It's beyond measure. We could traverse the diameter, the width, length, distance of the universe if we could travel fast enough. We could do that because they have an estimate for how big it is. Nobody's estimated the distance between sin and holiness before. There's literally nothing sinful mankind can do to try to decrease that distance on their own effort. There's nothing we can do to inch closer to holiness. Sounds like a problem, right? Mankind is created in the image of God to have a relationship with God, but the immeasurable distance between our sin and his holiness makes that impossible. So what happened? Infinite God moved that infinite distance becoming like us as a person, as a man, closing that distance that we could not do ourselves. But that's not all he did, right? In closing that distance, he became like us in every respect, save one. He was without sin, which means he did not set aside his holiness. That's something that he retained. He was without sin. But the problem wasn't fixed with just his coming. Just because he came didn't mean we can somehow traverse that impossible distance back to a relationship with God. Why? Because we are still guilty. We still deserve the perfect wrath of God's perfect justice because we have, re- we have chosen to reject his rule. The penalty of humanity's rebellion against the, the rightful rule of God over our lives, the rightful object of, of all of our praise, all of our worship, all of our adoration, our rebellion against that means we cannot have that relationship with him because of our sin. There's a problem. That penalty needs to be satisfied. Most faith systems understand this problem, believe it or not. Most of them believe, have, understand that this problem needs to be solved in some way, and so they come up with ways of trying to, to fix it. We, we watched one on a video last week, and it was horrific. But their solutions are all man-made solutions to man-made problems in some kind of act of piety or deed or, or whatnot. And these faith systems are making a very crucial mistake. We like to think that the consequences fit the crime, but you're hearing it from me, that's a load of baloney. If you punch me in the face, 
It's not an invitation. But if you punch me in the face, I'll probably punch you back because I'm human and I'm sinful. That's probably going to be the extent of the consequence you feel. But if you punch a cop, you're probably going to experience a little bit more of a response, a little bit more of a consequence that is going to affect you in multiple ways when multiple cops are jumping on you. Plus your freedom. Now let's say you're standing before the judge after punching that cop, that cop and you punch the judge in the face. Right? <laughs> Suddenly it's escalating. Suddenly your freedom is going to be gone from you for far longer than before, than when you just punched me. So no, consequences do not fit the crime. Consequences vary depending on the authority that you have wronged. When we rebel against God's sovereign right to rule over our lives, it's like we're punching him in the face. Guess how long it takes to atone for that? You can't. It lasts an infinite amount of time because the person that you have wronged has infinite authority. And there's nothing you can do to fix that. Ever. The penalty for sin is more than we can bear. It takes an infinite holy being to atone for the consequences of even the slightest rebellion against this holy, almighty God. So this Jesus person, who was fully God and fully man, perfect and without sin, came here for another purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God the Father sent God the Son, who was perfect and without sin, to earth for our sake to take upon himself the punishment and sin that we deserved. Why? Why would he do that? So that we could experience the righteousness of God. So that we can put on the holiness of Jesus Christ and traverse that infinite distance between sin and holiness. Once again, we see how his coming did what we could not do. He fulfilled and paid for the consequences of our sin in a way that was impossible for us impossible through any lens that you use, any faith system that we could conjure. And this was always the plan. From the first Adam spoken into creation until Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. This was always the plan. In those three words, Jesus declares the bridge between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God had been complete by the shedding of his innocent blood. His death means that we can have forgiveness for rebelling against God. John 14, 6, Jesus declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. His death made that possible. And our text says that because of Jesus' obedience, because of his humility, because he was willing to take the punishment that we deserved, God the Father has exalted the name of Jesus above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Why, though? For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. That's the rest of that verse. 
If you've been paying attention tonight, you'll see that we've mentioned several reasons for why Jesus came. And if we wanted, we could take a bunch of those reasons and put them in a book like Nick just advertised. And they would all be all good reasons. It just wouldn't necessarily complete the picture. Our text says that Jesus is glorified and exalted above every name for a reason. And this reason is the glory of God the Father. Now, if we fixate on just what we get out of the crucifixion, if we make this a man-centered gospel and purpose, and when we do that, we are ultimately becoming the reason for why Jesus died. But we aren't. Far from it. We are not the reason. The crucifixion happened so that God the Father might be glorified. Which in turn brought exaltation and glory to the Son. This is why we are here tonight. This is why we celebrate. We celebrate his glory. It doesn't mean we can't celebrate what the, cru- what the crucifixion accomplishes for us. By all means, we need to celebrate that because he atoned for our sins. He bridged that gap, a thing that we could not do. So yes, we will sing about that. We will declare that. We will praise him for that. But let's not forget the ultimate purpose here. Let's not forget that the glory for all of this belongs to the Father. Why? First and foremost, our salvation belongs to his perfect plan. And Jesus is glorified because he was obedient to the point of death to accomplish that plan. And because of that, he is glorified. And in Scripture, particularly in Revelation, we read how we are then partakers of that glory. It's an amazing plan. But the point, the purpose, the focus is the glory of our God. That's why we are here tonight. The glory of God the Father with his plan. The glory of God the Son in his obedience. And then it's a promise of the glory that we will taste in the future if we are part of that family. So let's celebrate. Let's keep celebrating. Let's keep singing. Let's sing some more. I like singing. Uh, My text is is Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 through 11, and so you can follow along behind me. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we, were his in, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." This has always been one of those texts that's hard for me. It was just, 
it was hard for me to get my head, especially around verse 7. The word scarcely means not readily or or only rarely. And so Paul is basically saying um, most people won't die for another person, not even for a righteous person. So, I mean, think about it. Who would you die for? Maybe, Maybe a spouse? Maybe a child? Maybe another immediate family member? Maybe the church? Maybe a few people in the church? Um... Who would you die for? So so why does Paul bring this up? He's walking through Romans. He's helping us understand the gospel. What is the point of bringing up the fact that you, that I, that most people, we don't readily die for other people? Well, Paul's going to make a contrast between us and the way we act and God and the way that he acts. And he wants us to see something. And what he wants us to see is, is um, is how God has sent his son Jesus to die. And in, in our section, in our text here, we have that Jesus has come to the cross that he would die. But Paul doesn't just tell us that he dies, he tells us who he died for. And so in verse 6 we read, Jesus dies for the ungodly. Now the word ungodly means unholy, and it refers to the condition of all humanity. It's you, it's me, it's everyone as we're born into this world. But Paul does not leave it at that. He doesn't just want to say the ungodly, those who are not like God, those who act in, um, in contrast to God, those who are not holy. He goes on and he says in verse 6, we are weak. He says at the right time, God died for those who are weak. To be ungodly is, is not strength, but it is weakness. We were powerless to escape sin. We're powerless to escape death. We're powerless to resist Satan. We're powerless to praise God and please Him in any way possible by our works. We are weak. He also says that we are sinners. This means we rebel against God. We actively move against Him. It's not that we just don't like Him. We actually hate him we're anarchists to his kingdom in verse 10 it says that we're enemies of god now this word enemies is used to show that we are separated from god we have no relationship with him we we um are not a part of his kingdom but we are against his kingdom and so what 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 is this contrast that paul's making we won't die For many people, not even a righteous person, most of us won't. But now, Jesus, we're told, He has come that He would die on a cross, not for good people, not for righteous people, not for holy people, not for people who love Him, but those who reject Him, hate Him, and spurn Him. That's who Christ has come for. This is like the Jew dying for Nazi soldiers, the black person dying for the KKK members, or the one who was raped just dying for their perpetrator. And yet the cross is so much more than even those. So as we gather and we think about the cross tonight, we must realize the condition in which you and which I and which all of humanity we are in apart from the grace of God. You see, when God looks at us, there's nothing intrinsic about us that is appealing to Him. He doesn't choose us because we make Him greater. We don't make His team stronger. And what we see is that we're in no way deserving. In fact, if anything, we deserve the opposite 
That's what grace is. Grace is God's goodness given to those who deserve the opposite. We deserve wrath, but by God's grace we receive mercy and love. So why does Jesus do it? Ben has showed, Ben has given us like the ultimate foundational reason which all other reasons sit on, which is why he went first. (laughs) It's for the glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God. There is not one thing that God ever does that is not for his glory. And so that is the foundation of everything else and all other purposes. But there are other purposes, subordinate purposes, but there are purposes that God has given us in his word. And what we have here is that one of those is that God desires to demonstrate his love. Verse 8, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we come to Good Friday, what are we celebrating? Yes, it's all about the glory of God. We must never lose that. But it is also because he loves us. John says the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus came out of the Father's love. This means that Jesus is not running, jumping in front of God's wrath, trying to save us and thwart the plans of His Father, but rather He and the Father are working in perfect unison together as the Father has declared salvation and the Son has come to achieve it at the cross. And so Jesus comes to show the extravagant love of God. And what we see is that this love is gracious. It comes when we don't deserve it. It's costly in that it costs Jesus his life. It's merciful in that apart from God's grace and his goodness, we're in misery because of our sin. And this love has a purpose. If you look at verse 10, we read that we are reconciled to God through the death of the Son. So he comes that you that I, that all who would believe in Him, that we would see His love. The cross is about God demonstrating His love. And and in that love, what God is doing is He's reconciling us to Him. And in verse 11 we read, we also rejoice in God throughout, through our Lord Jesus Christ, though we have, through, we have now received reconciliation. Now, the word reconcile refers to relationship. God sent his son Jesus to die so that we would be justified. That's what we read earlier. In fact, justification and reconciliation are in parallel in our passage. When we look at that, it says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, and now, it's, now that we are reconciled to him, we've been reconciled so that we have a relationship with God. We were enemies, we were alienated, but now because of the cross, he saves us so that we would forever experience his love do you know that forever experience his love that he would bring us into his presence psalm 16 11 says that is that it is in the very presence of god that there is everlasting joy so what god does at the cross he sends his son to demonstrate his love so that we would be saved by that love brought into the everlasting presence of god and experience the fullness of his joy And now notice the assurance. 
We have assurance of this. This is not just something we read and go, is that going to happen? But in verse 10 it says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be great, shall we be saved by his life. So there's logic here. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If he saves us while we're enemies, while we're weak, while we hate him, while we don't love him, while we spurn his name. Now he's saved us, given us his spirit, adopted into his, into his family, calls us sons and daughters, makes us an heir equal with his son so that everything Jesus has, we're told in Romans, now we possess also. How much more will now God save us that we've been reconciled? Do you see the argument? If he does it when we're enemies... If he gives us this love here, how much more now? There's the beautifulness about the cross. As he shows us his love, it's a love that never ceases. It's a love that continues. In fact, if we went to the verse before our passage... In verse 5, it says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. If you are a believer right now, the very love that God demonstrates at the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ, is now poured into you on a daily basis through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. The gospel is all about love. God demonstrating his love, God sharing his love, God bringing us into his love that we would be with him for all of eternity. And so as we celebrate Good Friday, we must see it's for his glory. It's for his glory. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's holy. That's why it's glorious. That's why we can be assured of the trustworthiness of it. And we know that it also demonstrates the love of God, and it's a love far different than anything we see in this world. And so let us rejoice that at the cross, God justifies us. He declares us righteous through what his son has done. He reconciles us so we'd be brought into a relationship with us, with him, and experience his extravagant love. So let us praise our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for this night. And so what we're going to do